Well, this time we're going to transition over to our panel discussion. It's just about time. Um, if the four men that are involved in the discussion, are you all here? If you could just make your way up and um, there's four chairs over to that side and uh, we can uh, begin here. So the topic as you see it uh, in your brochure is the biblical answer to modern ecumenicalism. Now ecumenicalism is a big word and it has been pointed out to us um, that we can use a shorter word, ecumenism. So we might be using those two words interchangeably here. So before we, as we begin here, I just want to read some verses from John uh, chapter 17. It's often uh, been referred to as uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer. So John 17 verse 11 says, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are one. Jesus' heart for his people. Think of the unity that Jesus had with his Father. Perfect union, unity of love. And that's what Jesus wants for his people. Let's read a few more verses in John 17:21 to 23. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Now we begin to see a reason. Why Jesus wants this unity, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Do we realize what that means? Do we realize what's at stake here? The unbelieving world, one of the ways they're going to come to know that Jesus Christ is God and Savior is by the unity they see in God's people. What a responsibility that places on our shoulders. Continuing on in verse 22. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. We have a responsibility given to us by the Lord Jesus himself, a responsibility that we just don't have what it takes to carry out. We must rely on the Lord. We must rely on God's spirit to bring about this kind of unity. And to the extent that we do, it seems that that's the extent to which unbelievers will believe in Jesus as Savior and know that God loves them. So what we want to explore this afternoon in our panel discussion is just what did Jesus mean by this unity? And how can we achieve this biblical unity without compromising our scriptural beliefs and scriptural truth? And specifically with the modern ecumenical movement, how do we relate to that as people of God? who want to base our lives on the truth of God's word, and we don't want to compromise, yet we want to have unity with other believers. How can we achieve that? How can we do that? Those are some of the questions that we want to explore uh, this afternoon in our discussion. We want to see if we can find some principles for how to work with other Christians who believe differently than we do. 
And how can we do that? So what we're going to do here in a moment, I'm going to give a kind of a working definition of ecumenism or ecumenicalism. And then each one of our uh, panelists here, I'm going to have each one come up one at a time and they're going to share a brief um, message, if you will, or statement maybe uh, about this topic. They're going to take a few minutes, several minutes to do that, each one. And I would ask you, brothers, as you come up, if you could just introduce yourselves, give your name and where you're from, and a little bit more maybe of your heart uh, for, uh, for God's church. And then after we do that, uh, we're going to have some questions. And we have some questions that we have ahead of time uh, from the panelists and some of your questions. Now, we did get a, a good, fairly good number of questions, and so we are grateful for that. And keep in mind, we have a time constraint here. We, we will not be able to handle all the questions, but hopefully there'll be enough overlapping that at least most of the questions uh, that you have will be answered or at least addressed. And so um, at this point, let's just uh, bow our heads for a word of prayer, and then we'll continue. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you. Lord, you promised that if we would believe in you and trust in you and follow you and do things your way, you would build your church on that solid rock that we heard about this morning. The rock, Christ Jesus, that does not move and cannot be shaken. And that's what we want, Lord. We want to build our lives, our churches, on the solid rock of Christ and on nothing else. So we ask you to help us today, Lord, as we explore these questions about how to have unity without compromising scriptural truth. Lord, just help us to address those things that we need to address and help our hearts to come under the submission of the truth of your word. Bless those who will be sharing up here, especially, Lord, as they give presentations and, and try to give answers to questions, Lord. I pray the anointing of your spirit upon this meeting today, Lord, that truth will come forth truth spoken in love and we pray in Jesus name amen amen okay for a working definition of ecumenicalism pertaining to a movement the ecumenical movement especially among Protestant groups since the 1800s aimed at achieving universal Christian unity and church union through international, interdenominational organizations that cooperate on matters of mutual concern. Now that's quite a mouthful. So let me just go through that again. The definition of ecumenicalism. Pertaining to a movement, especially among Protestant groups since the 1800s, aimed at achieving universal Christian unity so Christian unity among groups of Christians throughout the world and church union. So the unity of, among churches throughout the world through international, interdenominational organizations that will cooperate on matters of mutual concern. And so some of the things we will explore will be how to relate to Christians who believe a little differently than we do, or maybe a lot differently. We still have to love them. We still should want to love them, and we still want to cooperate to the extent that we can. But how far can we take that? You know, there's a, a ditch on either side of the road. We can just 
cooperate and, and um, just anything, have an anything goes uh, tolerant kind of attitude. Or we can withdraw to the other ditch so strongly that we have nothing to do with them. There, there has to be some common ground. There has to be a way for us to, to relate in love to our brothers and sisters who, who believe differently without compromising the truth of Scripture that, that we have and that we believe. So we hope to be able to explore some of those questions today. Okay, so brothers, um, I'd like to just give the order for each one of you to come and give you a brief presentation. And you can be seated, and the next one can come in that order, and then we'll begin our questions. So first, we'll have uh, Brother John Byers, uh, then Brother Kurt Wagoner, Brother David Brousseau, and then Brother Finney Curavilla. So John, if you could start off, and then just introduce yourselves briefly, your name, where you're from, maybe something about your church involvement and, and your heart for that, and go into your presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Ron. Uh, my name is John Byers. I'm from Chambersburg area. My wife and daughter and two of my sons are here. Two boys have been telling you where to sit. Or my, Two of my sons, we're thankful for them. We have two other children, uh, an older daughter and an older son that are married. We have five wonderful grandchildren. The question I was asked to address is how do we live out John, uh, the prayer of Jesus in John 17 in the 21st century? Uh, Brother Ron just shared from some of John 17. And I think if we look at Jesus' uh, prayer here, a powerful prayer for his people, a powerful prayer for you and for me, one of the things that we see the emphasis on in verse 3 and also in verse 23 is that we might be in Christ. If we make unity our goal, uh, we will have to compromise a lot of truth in order to be like-minded. But if we make the Lord Jesus Christ and being in him and he in us, if we live out that marvelous mystery of the gospel, uh, which is our only hope of glory, Christ in you, uh, you in him, uh, if we make that our focus and our passion in life, we will find ourselves uh, being one with God's people. Even though we may vary a little bit in our practical application, we will be one in heart, one in vision, one in love for the most important person, Jesus Christ himself. Uh, I think secondly, in, in verse 17 through 19, we read, sanctify, uh, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they might be sanctified through the truth. And what we see there is that it is not the Christian's responsibility to be changing other people. Our responsibility is to lead people to the Lord Jesus Christ and to teach them to drink deeply from the living water that he is. Pride in our lives causes us to try to change people and make them think like we think. We want them to learn to have the mind of Christ, not to be duplicates of us. And so we, Jesus sanctified himself before the Father that he might be able to sanctify his disciples. In the same way, Christians today that truly want to see the unity of Christ in his body understand the importance that we sanctify ourselves. We allow the Word of God to do its work in our hearts and lives. We recognize that we're saved positionally, 
by faith in Jesus Christ, we are being saved, sanctified, on our way to heaven. And at that moment, we will be saved eternally. We understand that, and we trust that it's the work of God's Spirit in people's lives. We want it to be the work of God's Spirit, because unless it is the work of God's Spirit in in lives of those that we are ministering to, it will not be an enduring work. We come to verse 14 of this passage, and Jesus makes it very clear in verse 14 that His truth also divides. Jesus said at one point that I have not come to bring peace into the world, but a sword. And in verse 14 here, he makes it clear that truth will divide you from the world. It will cause animosity between you and the world. In other scriptures, we also understand that truth will divide the professors from the possessors. Those who truly are believers and obedient to Jesus Christ will find that not all men will endure sound doctrine. And so we do need to separate ourselves. The scripture says you don't even bid someone Godspeed who takes it upon themselves to discredit God's Word or to add, God, add to God's Word. So we take that very seriously. God's Word, His truth, does bring us together into unity, but it also separates us as well from that which has no part of the kingdom of God. I believe we want to, in verse uh, 22, uh, it says here, And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. And my closing thought is that we want to enter into that joy of living lives that give God glory. Many people in the world will come to you and say, Huh, what's the difference between you and that group over there? Or this group of believers and that group of believers? I believe if we have our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, we do not use opportunities like that to draw attention to ourselves or to exalt ourselves, but we simply focus on the core issues of life and death and what Jesus has taught, that He is our life, and and that not all Christians practice things exactly the same, but we are committed. Those true believers whose faith is in Jesus Christ, we are committed to practicing things that Jesus has taught us and to loving Him with all of our heart. God bless you. I'm Kurt Wagoner, and we're from, my wife Janie is here with me, and and we're from west of Dayton, Ohio. Uh, Our particular brotherhood is the German Baptist Brotherhood, New Conference, if that's meaningful to you. And uh, we're just delighted to be here. uh, Our children have been here various times in the past years. This is our second year to be at Kingdom Fellowship Weekend. The theme is uh, very, very interesting to me, the theme this year. I've been asked to to speak about principles for relating to Christians and other church settings. And I'm working from a prepared statement. I'm trying to keep my comments within the four to five minute time frame. So I'll go through this quickly. Principles for relating it to Christians and other church settings. The question before us, of course, is not whether we'll relate to Christians and other church settings, but it's how we relate to Christians and other church settings, and and it's uh, it's what principles can we use to instruct us in relating to fellow Christians from other church settings? Four of them: the principle of charity, <clears throat> of all the principles that are to guide the believer. Certainly, charity must be preeminent. Jesus said, "By this shall all men know you are my disciples, if you have love one to another." Paul, in that immortal passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 
provides this crowning statement. And now abideth faith, hope, charity. But the greatest of these is charity. Whatever lasting impression remains whenever we relate to other people, unless charity abides or endures, we have absolutely failed in kingdom advancement. Relating to those in other church settings must be done with loving kindness. No options. We must genuinely have their best interest in heart. And we ought to first seek common ground upon which we can relate, upon which we can unite and establish relationship. It may be that there will be no need to address doctrinal differences or differences in practice. But it may be that the Holy Spirit will direct us in that way. Walking in that direction, however, and addressing differences must be done carefully and charitably, knowing that I am nothing without the love of Christ radiating forth from my life. Number two, the principle of humility. More harm has been done to relational harmony through an arrogant and haughty spirit than perhaps through any other means. When Jesus first established the principles through which his kingdom would operate and function, he began by saying things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are the meek. He said it was those individuals who would inhabit the kingdom of heaven and who would inherit the earth. It is through coming under others rather than coming at them with arrogance and haughtiness, coming to them with humility, that we can best relate with them and seek to mutually advance the kingdom. In 1 Peter, one of the primary themes emphasized by the apostle is a theme of practical subjection. Peter writes the need to be subject to civil authorities, the need to be subject in workplace settings, the need to be subject in the marriage relationship, and the need for youth to be subject to elders in the church. He then concludes this instruction with a statement about Christian apparel. He says, Yea, all of you, be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Wearing the garments of humility, also portrayed as the garments of praise, will facilitate an atmosphere of mutual goodwill as we relate with those in other church settings. Number three, the principle of verity. It is possible, and many have apparently walked this path, to exert such effort in establishing relationships within the broader kingdom setting that harmony exists only because truth or verity has been avoided. C.H. Spurgeon, recognizing this human tendency, once emphasized, however, once, um, and once countered, however, with this statement, I am quite certain, Spurgeon says, that the best way to promote union is to promote truth. It will not do for us to be all united together through yielding to one another's mistakes. The Apostle John emphasizes within a context of the embrace of truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. That's a conditional statement. 
And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. John here states that without walking in light or truth, we will not have the colony experience of Christian fellowship. Because we will not experience the cleansing blood of Jesus and his redemption, which unites us together in the kingdom and at the throne. Number four, the principle of purity. The Bible says it is only the pure in heart who will see God. It is only the pure in heart who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord. It is only the pure in heart who possess a clear conscience and live unfeignedly. It is only through those who are walking in consecration of life, not practicing pretense at any level, that real relationships can be established, maintained, and spirit-empowered to promote true biblical unity within the broader kingdom setting. One concluding verse is quite impacting as we consider principles for relating to Christians in other church settings, as well as in our own. Peter says, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. In this passage, the Bible brings together each of these four principles, charity, humility, verity, and purity, and weaves them together as a powerful testimony of the sanctified. Our responsibility is simply to see that we do it. Hi, I'm David Berceau, and I live here locally, attend Chambersburg uh, Christian Fellowship, which is just in the nearby town of Chambersburg. And we certainly welcome all of you who've come from other places here that we can enjoy this fellowship together. I was asked to uh, address this topic a little bit from the perspective of the early Christians, what we could learn from, from their experience. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit on that. For me, one of the starting points is to realize that the divisions that we have here on earth are not going to exist in heaven. Um, I, I don't mean that everybody who calls their names Christian are, are going to be in heaven. I don't think any of us think that. But um, it is going to be a terrible thing that we'll be fellowshipping in eternity with people we refuse to fellowship with here on the earth. Now, in looking at the early Christians and their unity and why they're of interest is because... That was the only time all Christians were united in one church without any state church. It's just a voluntary arrangement. You had every Christian being part of one church. So how did they do that? And um, what happened why the church lost its unity, I think, is equally important. Now, obviously, the early Christians, and by early Christians, I'm talking, say, the second century from about the year 100 to 200. Although they stayed united until about the time of the uh, Council of Nicaea. Now, obviously, they couldn't have had this unity without the Holy Spirit. We certainly uh, believe we have the Holy Spirit, but, I mean, let's be honest. We don't have unity among ourselves as Anabaptists. I, I assumed when I was first told about this topic that 
Oh, I guess we're talking about, you know, what do we need to do that we Anabaptists can be one? And, and uh, uh, Joel gently explained to me, no, we're talking about what our relations with other churches. And like I say, the terrible thing is we can't even agree among ourselves. Conferences like this are so good because it brings uh, Anabaptists and Kingdom Christians from, from various backgrounds. But I think one of the big things with the early church, why they were one, is that they didn't have to create it. It was handed to them. They just had to maintain what was handed to them. And they were handed a unified church because of the incredible work of the apostles, particularly the original 11 in Matthias, and of course Paul. Now, what do you think of when I... Uh, mention the name Simon the, the Canaanite, or some translations say uh, Simon the Zealot. You probably don't think of anything. I say Bartholomew, what do you think of? I mean, he was one of the twelve. Don't, don't think of anything. James, the son of Alphaeus, you don't think of anything. For much of my life, until I read the early Christian writings, I, I actually had the impression that the uh, original leaven just kind of dropped off the scene. Paul had to pick up and, and uh, you know, plant the church, and, and they just dropped the ball, and that was it. And if we believe that, we'd have to believe that prayer is fairly useless. Jesus spent an entire night in prayer before he selected those men. And if he couldn't get an answer to his prayer... It would be a little scary. What about our, our prayers? No, Jesus got exactly the people he wanted. And we think of them as a bunch of bunglers because that's how they preferred we think about them. None of them left biographies of themselves. The first, few, first two Gospels written were Matthew and Mark. Mark wrote his under the uh, peerage of Peter. Mark wasn't an eyewitness to most of those events. Peter was. And the apostles, when they wrote about themselves, presented themselves as bumblers. They write about all their mistakes, none of their victories. And the point is that they were selfless men. The church was united because of their humility. They were willing and happy to be thought of as nothing, that their names would be forgotten. And... No one associated a church with them. If it had been almost anybody else, at the end of the first century, you would have had 12 churches, divided churches, plus 13 with Paul, and squabbling, and, and they would all have been able to name reasons why they couldn't fellowship together. But no, you had one church because they were nothing, the men who planted it, and they didn't want to be thought of as anything but that. They didn't want their names to be remembered. They knew that all they were was what they were before God. And what people thought of them didn't matter. And they'd rather people know about their faults than about their victories. And it's why one reason unity has been lost is because people lost that humility. There were two initial of the great reformers. Great, I don't mean being in the sense of good, but who had a major impact, Zwingli and Luther. Those two couldn't agree. You end up with two churches and not in communion with each, with each other. Just two of them. What do you think if there had been 12 equal uh, reformers? You'd have had 12, 12 churches, and then in 50 years, there'd been 26, and, and so on. John Wesley, a man I admire enormously. In fact, he didn't leave a church, so I can't blame him for this, but out of his Methodist movement, in 100 years, you had at least 30 uh, distinct churches that had come out of that. 
bringing home to us the Vichy Amish, a group that I have uh, a lot of respect for. So many of the ministries it seems like the Anabaptists are involved with have nearly always been created by Vichy Amish. They haven't even been around a century. Look at how many different groups have come out of the Vichy Amish. And again, I'm not faulting them. I mean, you know, we have a problem. And we can hardly work for unity with other Christians when we can't even work together. But uh, the brother had mentioned, and I would agree with him, humility is a huge thing. And, of course, love, as, as he mentioned, that the apostles had that. And that's why they could leave an undivided church. We can't put the whole church back together again without a miracle of God. That's for sure. But we can do our part that we aren't part of the divisive spirit. That's what we can do. Now, like I say, they were handed a a unified church. What helped them to keep it together were uh, several things. Their theology was quite simple. All of the theology you had to believe to be an Orthodox Christian was what is called the Apostles' Creed. Because of time, I'm not going to read it to you, but it is very short. Practically everybody today who calls himself a Christian, or certainly a Bible-believing Christian, would believe in the Apostles' Creed. It's that basic. And it's when the church started coming up with complicated creeds, adding more and more, that you had your first splits. Another thing that helped them to stay together is that they didn't nullify any New Testament commandments. To the best of my ability, I'm not aware of one single New Testament commandment that the early Christians didn't keep. And as soon as the church starts throwing out Christ's commandments, it creates a problem. What do you do? Do you go along with this or do you stand with obedience to Christ? And it's going to almost always create disunity when people start throwing out commandments. And sometimes they don't have to expressly throw them out. You can do the, have the same effect by lax discipline. I mean, the Catholic Church never threw out uh, the laws on covetousness or drunkenness or sexual immorality. But over the the centuries, the discipline was so lax, you could come to to communion even though you were living in adultery, even though you were a drunkard and and, and all of that. You know, you confess your sin, you know, before you you could have communion. That was one of the things that concerned our forefathers. Well, the other thing is they didn't add any new commandments to what Christ has given. We've we've got enough to to focus on. And you start adding new commandments, you're going to have disunity. I mean, there's just no way everyone is going to agree on that. Now, I'm not talking about applications, reasonable applications of Bible principles when I say new commandments. But, I mean, there were actually new commandments added over the years. One was you had to venerate icons. And if you wouldn't do that, uh, you were put out of the church. You had to baptize your infants. Those became new commandments in the church. Well, the reasons why our forefathers left were because of those very things, uh, throwing out the commandments, adding new theology. None of that has changed. Now, the one thing that has changed, however, is we can dialogue now. (laughs) Our Original Anabaptist forefathers, they couldn't dialogue, except when, when they were in prison hanging by chains. Yeah, they could, uh, and they did give a witness, but uh, that was it. They couldn't sit down and talk these things out. We can dialogue now. We're not being persecuted now. So we do have the opportunity to, to speak out, to build some bridges, and I think it's absolutely important that we do. Another factor is uh, 
I'm sure in the 1520s, when uh, the Reformation and the Radical Reformation were going on and, and all of that, I doubt the Anabaptists thought that 500 years in the future, the uh, Lutherans and the Catholics would still be around. And I'm sure the Lutherans didn't think the Anabaptists and the Catholics would be around 500 years in the future. And I'm sure the Catholics didn't think either of the other two would be around. And here we are 500 years later, and all three groups are still around. Maybe the 500 years would give us a little pause for humility that maybe all light didn't exist with the Anabaptists and all darkness with, with the other churches. I mean, if you've read any of my books, you know I'm a very thorough Anabaptist and very critical of, of evangelicals. So I'm not coming from some you know, liberal kind of thing, but I'm just saying a little humility, I think we can realize that, yes, they did do some things right that we missed, and we didn't have it all worked out quite as perfectly as we thought. But to build bridges, and I'll close on this note, you know, one step, as the brother mentioned, is humility. I'm going to just give you a quick illustration, and, and why we don't build bridges is, I think, a lack of humility. Uh, a number of years ago, a, a pastor who normally, I mean, he's such a fine brother, um, this wouldn't be something I would normally associate with his character, so uh, I'm not going to mention his, his name, but uh, uh, even very great Christian men can, can make mistakes. But um, interestingly, a Baptist church wanted to, to visit the Mennonite church, called them up and you know, asked if they could visit, and they'd like to learn something about the Mennonites. And so it was set up to, for them to come after the service, I think at 1 o'clock you know, on Sunday, something like that. I was not there present, but he, it was the preacher himself who told me about it. And he said uh, one of the Baptist ladies had a red dress on, and he felt he needed to rebuke her for that. And I thought, I can tell you one thing. Um, those people would have had no interest further in the Anabaptists. You know, that, that ended any dialogue, any interest they would have had. I can almost assure you of that. Number two, I can virtually assure you that that red dress was one of the least sins in that lady's life. I can guarantee you there were a whole list you'd go down before you'd get to the, the red dress. And we may think that that's just being truthful, but that's being proud. When you notice... Something like that on the external, you don't even know the person's heart, you don't know anything else. She would wear, a, I came from an evangelical you know, background, I know, you wear a red dress because you've had no teaching other than that. You don't realize there's anything wrong with it, it's never even crossed your mind. But yeah, as long as that's going to be our approach to the other churches, we're not going to build any bridges, we're not going to help them see the light. And the result is, I have to say, in 500 years, we've had almost zero impact on the other churches. They've influenced us a whole lot more than we've influenced them on anything. Uh, hopefully that can change. I mean, it's, it, you know, never too late to start. So and I think while we're having this panel discussion, thank you. Hi, my name is Finney Caravella. I'm from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm here with my wife, Laura, and our four boys and girl. I'm thankful that we're having this discussion on unity and ecumenicalism, given its importance. Anybody who has read the New Testament knows that this subject was a very dear one to Jesus and his apostles. 
the high priestly prayer, the books of Romans, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians. They all illustrate how precious unity was to our Lord and the disciples. In fact, the messianic age in which we now live is supposed to be marked by the nations, both Jew and Gentile, rallying together under the banner of King Jesus. We are supposed to be the living demonstration of Jesus' power, showing the world what it means to be reconciled to both God and man. This is a lofty goal in an age of fracture and disillusionment, and it requires the Lord's blessing, much prayer, and careful study of God's word. Whenever these discussions occur, I'm sure you've heard this if you've been in these discussions before, it's often posited that you have unity over here, and that's one goal, and there's truth over here, and that's another goal, and somehow we have to try to balance between those two. Have you all all heard that, unity and truth being on these opposite sides? Well, when you frame it like that, something has gone terribly wrong. Hopefully, all of us, when we hear this framing, we should, in in our heart, say, but I want both unity and truth. I don't want just one or the other. In fact, biblical unity requires truth. What is passed off as unity by the ecumenical movement is not unity. It's tolerance. There's a world of difference between unity and tolerance. To get a feel for biblical unity, just listen to some of these scriptures. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. That's Philippians 2. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. That's 1 Corinthians 1. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Philippians 1. We have seen now the fruits of the ecumenical movement. As was mentioned by Brother Ron, it began in the 1800s. There's not much to speak of there. How do we attain biblical unity in contrast to the tepid, uninteresting achievements of the ecumenical movement? uh, Ecumenism or ecumenicalism is a lukewarm failure that has people exiting the church today. How do we achieve a biblical unity without creating divisions that have created so many denominations. I'm just going to offer two applications. I want to say an amen to all of the comments that were given before. I I genuinely appreciated them. The first application I'll give you is that there is a time to divide. There's a verse on the subject which is not commonly discussed, which I wish it, it were more. It's from Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. It says this, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses, Contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. There's a paradox in that verse, verse 17. I don't know if you caught that. He says, note those who cause divisions and offenses, and then later on he says, avoid them. So note those who cause divisions over here and avoid them. So we're supposed to divide from those who are causing division. That's what it says. Do you see that tension? For the sake of unity, there actually comes a time to divide. We're supposed to do that when, it says very clearly there, when a person teaches what is, quote, contrary to the doctrine which you learned. This strikes against the heart of ecumenism. 
Ecumenism downplays the doctrine which you learned. It seeks to bring people together despite any differences that they may have, even if they are biblical teachings. Again, this is tolerance. This is not unity. My second and final application is this. We can only bind another person's conscience to scripture, not to human opinion. So often, people confuse God's truth with human opinion. Whenever we get that confused, the seeds are being sowed for division. God's truth transcends opinion. He transcends my opinion. It transcends any of the panel's opinion, anybody in this room's opinion. We need to understand what is a biblical or a necessary inference versus, on the other side, a human opinion. Anything that is opinion must never be used to bind another person's conscience. This is what I sometimes call an extra-biblical standard. This is rebuked in Scripture in several places. I'll read one to you. This is from Colossians 2. It says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings... These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Unfortunately, self-made religion, human precepts and teachings have been a problem in virtually all groups, including in Anabaptist groups. It has caused great division. It has been a stumbling block to outsiders, particularly those from different cultures. Now, If a person stumbles at Jesus, if they stumble at his cross, if they stumble at his teaching, that's one thing. We we all have to say there is an immense block, an immense stumbling block. It's a stumbling block to Jews, it's a stumbling block to Greeks. I'm okay with that. But we don't want to add extraneous stumbling blocks besides the one that we already have given to us from Scripture. Notably, setting up extra-biblical standards and dividing over them has plagued the church from the very beginning. Romans 14 is Paul's attempt to get people to not enforce their opinions on one another. He welcomes diversity in areas where scripture is silent. Let me commend that chapter to you. Unity is not the same as uniformity. If we aim for uniformity, you will cause people to stumble. You will also lose diversity in many other ways. So truth, the truth of Romans 14 actually encourages diversity. In the case of, for example, dietary issues, treating one day as holy versus another day, And hopefully, one of my my deep prayers for those of us who are kingdom Christians, those of us who come from Anabaptist backgrounds, Protestant backgrounds, whatever, is that we remember how seriously Jesus condemned those who put stumbling blocks before others. Do we remember those passages? Those are very important passages. We, We dare not forget that. We dare not forget that and lose the fear of God as we cause others to stumble unnecessarily. In conclusion, my prayer is that the Anabaptist and Kingdom Christians learn the fear of God and recognize how serious an offense that human stumbling blocks are. We must learn what are necessary biblical inferences and the difference between those and extra-biblical human teachings. At the same time, as Romans 16:17 says, we should avoid those who teach what is contrary to Scripture. In so doing, with the Spirit's blessing, we may attain the biblical unity which is founded on truth. Thank you. Very good. Thank you, brothers, for sharing. Uh, We'll have some questions now. 
especially in light of what we've heard, we have a little more background and a little more information. So a question uh, that we would have to start with. So Brother David talked about the unity that the early church had, and it was kind of given to them right there in the very beginning. There weren't a lot of splinter groups going off yet. It was all part, all one, all one church. Um, so practically, can we hope for something like that today? Or what's the best that we can hope for? We heard about unity and truth must go together, and yet we're supposed to divide from those who cause division. So the question is, can we have that kind of unity that the early church had? Or if not, how close can we, can we get to that? What's the best we can hope for? And each one of you brothers is welcome to uh, share a response to that. I'll start, I'll start on that. So. Okay, yeah, I'll start on that. Yeah, I mean, we, I, I don't know that we can, can hope for anything like a, a true universal one church anymore. But we can be responsible for ourselves. We can be responsible for the, the, the affairs of our own house, so to speak. And one of the things that I've, I've noted, coming from a, a Protestant background, is that we've actually seen a number of examples in other groups and other Protestant denominations where they've actually come together and... Uh, smooth over their differences and in fact united as one and I, I think it is possible I, I don't think there's any reason why we need to be limited by just oh it's it's just this way or it's just historic precedent it's possible it's absolutely possible but I, I wouldn't I, I'm not I don't think we should go to the extent that we need to try to force this upon other groups I think we need to try to do this among ourselves first it, that would probably echo most of my thoughts. I, I don't see any way, absent a miracle, and I certainly wouldn't put that out of God's power since that was Christ's prayer, but uh, you know, we can't bring it about. Uh, we just need to be sure we aren't the one that's causing disunity. That we can't do something about, as, as Finney said. We can build bridges. We can dialogue with, with others, and we can try to see what is true out there. And we can do a lot more to work among ourselves. When we set the example that we do of uh, division, uh, I, I can tell you, you know, having come not, not growing up in the Anabaptists, other people know how divided we are, and, and they mock us for it. I remember when I just first heard about Mennonites when I was living in Texas, didn't really know anything about them, but uh, a family in our church had moved down there from Philadelphia, and they were... They were saying, yeah, there's, there's some that they all drive black cars, and then another, but they have silver bumpers. And then there's another group, they have black cars, but they have black bumpers, you know. And, and we were all just, just laughing. It sounded so you know, ridiculous to us. People notice these, these things, and, you know, we can't hope to, you know, have any meaningful witness if, if we're so divided, and particularly among things that are just, it's not over a biblical commandment. I think there is a way to do this and do it rightly. Um, much of, of what we see in uh, the Protestant world around us appears to me, uh, movements like this are, are very superficial. Um, truth is basically discarded. Uh, redemption is uh, 
lightly looked at, true redemption. Uh, but I do think there's a way to do this and do this rightly. Um, cooperation in events like this is a good place to start, uh, certainly to perpetuate this. Um, there, there is a place, and I, and I just, uh, this is my heart, this is my desire, and this is something that I would like to, uh, to just encourage all of us to, to reach out to others in other church settings and, and uh, appreciate and explore and, and uh, being open to each other and just seeing what the Lord might do with His church. I believe that we must hope and we must pray for unity, the unity that Christ prayed for. And I believe, as, along with what the brethren have shared, uh, to be passionate about Christ and his word and to be humble about it, I believe, is what we must commit to. Uh, I have seen in, in my travels, I have seen a, a change. Um, I think it's a paradigm shift in, in our circles where there's not the the animosity or the antagonism uh, we can talk about eschatology and differ and everybody's okay uh, now some of that might be that people aren't into the word and and maybe don't really know what truth is um, but I believe that there's also a deeper humility that's being experienced and, and the blessing and the grace of that in many uh, people's lives and so I've been encouraged by some of the shift that I have seen uh, and want to encourage that. Let's let's be people of the truth. Let's pray for unity, and let's be humble as we share the truth that that we hold. Amen. Thank you, brothers. So then, a question that I see coming off of that um, is something along the lines of what Brother David was saying. Um, before we talk about how we can have unity, and when I say we, I mean conservative Anabaptist, if I can use a, a term like that. Before we talk about how we can have unity, we can have unity with other Christians outside of our circles, we need to answer the question, how can we first have unity within our own circles? So maybe before we uh, go on to talk about the modern ecumenical movement and how we should relate to that, let's have a, maybe a question here of practically what can we do to have more unity among our own conservative Anabaptist people? I'll start speaking as the outsider. Um, the, um, I think there's, there's, two, there's two tangible starting points that, that come to my mind right away. The, the first is, I think there's something very healthy about the scriptural model where you have local churches who are uh, they're self-sufficient, they're... they're, they're uh, I don't want to say autonomous, but they're, they're self-governing, they're, they're able to, to function on their own. But there are people who are circulating between these churches, this is what we see very clearly in the New Testament, people who circulate between these churches who function as the glue that bind them together. And uh, that, was, that role was, was fulfilled by the apostles and their, their delegates in the first century. And I know that sometimes there's this term used, exchanging pulpits, which I had never heard before I was in Anabaptist circles. But I think that's a very good thing, is to say, okay, well, there is a, a set of people who we can begin to link and circulate and begin to, to bind our groups together. Shared events like this is a very natural point there. Well, one other, this is a much more broad ambition that I have, but I'll, I'll say it uh, because I'm, I'm an idealist and I believe that we should aim high. It, 
when we think about why are we, why has so much disunity happened? And I think a lot of, a lot about this also from an international perspective. A lot of the reasons we're in the situation we're in today is because there's, there's too many people who are too concentrated in, in a given area and they're not, they're not being stretched enough. If, if you're in a, a situation where you're all alone as an isolated group of believers in some hostile foreign place, you're going to band together. And a lot of the differences that people tend to have, in my experience and historically speaking, have come from idleness, have come from not partaking enough in the work of God and being sent out. And, and it just it happens time and time again. There's one of the things that we see very, very early on in Genesis 1 is that God commanded humanity to fill the earth and to subdue it. And we have this opposite tendency, this Tower of Babel tendency, which is to congregate ourselves and to bind ourselves together. And when that happens, God, God sends a curse. And the curse that we see from, from Babel is this one of confusion. It's of it's disharmony. People can't relate. They can't communicate. And I believe that as we try to send out more and just slim down our churches and send out more people into the unreached areas, I think that'll do a, a lot of good in, a, in attaining biblical unity. Yeah, it's uh, just adding to what he said. It's interesting when there's persecution, there's almost always unity. And and it's when, yeah, we have too much spare time. It happened with the early church. Persecuted for 300 years, stayed together for 300 years. As soon as uh, persecution ended, then they had time to sit around and think about theological issues that they shouldn't have even been thinking about in the first place. And then pretty soon they're fighting, and and then the church started uh, breaking up. Yeah, being busy in God's work is a is a huge help. Uh, the encouraging thing that you know I've seen in, in just uh, my lifetime is uh, I think we're moving in the right direction. I, I may be mistaken. Maybe I'm an optimist too. But um, uh, things like CAM that that weren't around what 40 years ago, 50 years ago, and uh, brings you know plain people from a lot of different backgrounds working together and uh, conferences like this you know this is wonderful as I mentioned that you know of all different stripes we can see that oh these people aren't so strange after all wow they love all the same things uh, I do uh, probably the only disappointing thing to me about a conference like this is you know it's a, it's a young guy I don't know how old are you Joel 29 what, whatever who puts this together it'd be nice if these were the you know the 67 year old leaders of of the plain churches who said yeah we need to have conferences like this together but at least it's you know it's good we've we've started and there, there, other ones are going on so I think things are moving in the right direction I don't think there, we have to worry about uniting in like we all have the same standards and all that i don't have any problem with different standards between churches it's the problem is when we make them into something bigger than what they are that when we won't greet a brother or sister because you know their their head covering's a net and you're wearing a veil or or whatever it is over silly things like like that i know i'm not i'm not ridiculing the standards i'm just saying that shouldn't be a dividing line of who we're going to give a holy kiss to or, or, or something like, like that. But we can have the diversity. I don't think the diversity uh, you know, is in itself the problem. It's what we attach to it and how we treat our brothers and sisters in congregations that are just as much sold out to Jesus Christ, but their application of the same principle is just a little different than ours. I want to address a... A feature that I thought I heard perhaps in the question, and, and that is, how do we obtain unity 
in our own local church congregations and our own brotherhoods, uh, clustered church settings. And, and very concisely, I just want to say that, that I would like to go back to the, uh, to the Acts 4.31, I believe it is, model. And, and that verse, if I've got the right verse, says, When they had prayed, the place was shaken where they had gathered together. And so I ask myself and I ask all of us in our own local church settings, do we really, do we get together and really pray? Can we get together, all the brothers in the church, and really pray? When they had prayed, the place was shaken where they had gathered together. I believe there's been a, uh, again, a shift in the way churches work together, and I agree with Brother David that I think uh, ministries like Christian Aid Ministries, HRM, and other uh, opportunities for various Anabaptist groups to work together for a common cause has been very helpful in helping us to uh, renew our vision of Christ calling in our lives to be involved in reaching out and living out true religion, um, meeting the needs of those around us. In our clustered settings, I believe that we can all be engaged in, in helping to uh, break down the barriers between the various groups. Uh, and again, it's by keeping that perspective, the perspective that God has when he looks at us as his children. Some of the things that we've done in our community, uh, we had a work project for a non-Anabaptist neighbor, had several families from various Anabaptist groups involved in that. And that was just a, a good way for the community to see God's people come together and work together and enjoy being together. Um, we've had hymn sings where we've invited neighbors from various uh, congregations together for the evening. There are many things that we can do like that that strengthen God's family and help us to develop an appreciation and a love one for another. Amen. Thank you, brothers. One of the things I heard them saying was uh, not enough outward focus causes maybe too much inward focus. And we need to have a balance there. So I'd like to shift gears now. And uh, boy, the time is really going fast here. But uh, to try to address a little bit our um, relating to churches that are different and that we would say generally would be outside of Anabaptist circles. Um, so first, I'd like to back up and, and uh, entertain this question. In our desire for purity of faith and humility and flexibility to others, how do we scripturally determine the non-negotiables of faith and practice? What are those things in Scripture that we just can't negotiate on? Can, and if we can um, come up with a, a statement of that and maybe have focus on that, that might be a, a help. So how... Do we scripturally determine the non-negotiables of faith and practice? I love that subject. Um, for those who want to read my take on that, I have a whole book on just that subject of how you try to understand what are the essentials and what are the non-essentials called King Jesus Claims His Church. In a nutshell, there are, there's, and actually David has written about this as well in, in some of his writings. There, there is, a, there is a, one of the most important tasks of the church today, I believe, is recovering how to read scripture correctly and how to discern what is biblical? What is a necessary inference? And there's a whole toolkit that I think is right there in Scripture and how to, how to get to that. I mean, it would, it would be 
it would take too long to go through all of that now and the, the particularities. I would refer you to to my and others' writings on that subject if you want to hear how, how I approach it. But what I would say is this, that it is a it is such an important task, and it is something that we, we ought to be spending so much time on to understand what is truly essential and what is not essential. Where are those boundaries? Where does scripture celebrate diversity, and where does it encourage, uh, uh, and, sorry, where does it command monolithic obedience? And there are definitely those, those distinct categories that are there. As we, if we don't understand that, I, just, I see that we're just gonna be doomed in the same loop and cycle that we, we all are. One of the genius, um, most brilliant documents I think ever written was, was the Schleitheim Confession, Sattler writing shortly before his death, and he was trying to codify what, what is it that makes this new movement what it is. And I, I still think Schleitheim is one of the, the, the all-time best condensations of what it is to be a kingdom Christian. I, I think we should continue to develop that and, and wrestle with it and, and, and work those things out. But those are that, that enterprise is something that is... It's the foundation of achieving unity. All of everybody here has just affirmed that truth is the starting point to attain unity. And if we can't agree on what that is, and if we can't uh, coalesce around what those confessions, what those statements are, I just don't see this moving forward very effectively. Yeah, you know what I mentioned in, in uh, about the early church, the. Uh, all the theology that was essential was the Apostles' Creed. I, I think I would feel like, hey, it worked then. If, if, it, if that's all that was essential in the year 150, I don't know why something more is essential today. Happily, among Anabaptists, that's, none of our splits, or very few, have been over theology. We've done a very good job in that area. It's usually on the uh, applications. Um, I think probably all four of us up here would agree that none of the commandments in the New Testament are negotiable, that uh, those are, uh, are, are fixed. But uh, it doesn't mean that I can't work with another Christian in, in some kind of capacity um, who is violating and doesn't recognize some of those commandments. In, in Honduras, I, I work with uh, evangelical churches mainly down there. Uh, some Mennonites uh, as well, and I, I would not want to join their churches. I couldn't conscientiously do that, or uh, my fellowship is at a certain level, but we're working to help the poor. That is something we can do together, and it's been very good for me because I've seen a lot of these people that I might be inclined to look down on because they don't know about non-resistance, which I don't even know what that means in Honduras. I mean, I don't know when they've last had a war or, or will have one, but, but um, sometimes it's easy to forget the two greatest commandments of loving God and loving our neighbor. And I've had to admit to myself that a lot of these people, the evangelicals I'm working with, they love their neighbor a lot more than I do. And yeah, I've got the head training, I've got all of these other things, but the two great commandments, I can't say that, you know, I've done a better job or that our, our church has, you know. And that's no, I mean, I'm not uh, critiquing our church. I'm just saying, uh, yeah, you know, we, we can think obedience to the, some of the smaller, we can make that too big of a thing. But as far as being negotiable, no. I mean, as far as being able to love and work with someone on a certain level, yes, I can do that. But no, I would not join their church because of not... Uh, being willing to teach and enforce God's, uh, all of God's commandments. I think um, 
think we should make a distinction between association and fellowship. And I speak about fellowship in a uh, New Testament sense when I, when I make that distinction. And so we can associate in a lot of settings, but to really experience uh, Christian fellowship, that, that's a different level. And, and there are certain things to me that are non-negotiable. I'll just uh, kind of stick my neck out here because I like to be rather candid. And uh, Brother David mentioned a couple of them already. Non-resistance is a non-negotiable thing for me. The women's head covering is a non-negotiable truth. Uh, other things uh, like marriage uh, after divorce uh, would be non-negotiable. Another one, uh, friendship with the world is enmity with God is, uh, is the endeavor that we're pursuing. Is that taking me closer to God or is that taking me closer to the world? Those are just some of the things that you know, I'm just talking about major doctrinal truths that, uh, that would really check me as far as being linked in any kind of uh, real Christian fellowship in, in certain settings. Association, yes, I can associate, but, uh, but true Christian fellowship is a little bit different, uh, different place. I think the battle that we're facing right now is in the arena of doctrinal purity. The Anabaptist forefathers and the early church uh, fought to uh, be sure that everyone understood that Jesus Christ was indeed who he said he was. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you confess him that he is who he said he was? Two of the uh, things that we're facing right now, one is, is pantheism, the other is mimetic theory. And those teachings come, um, pantheism, we can come to Christ by other means than Jesus Christ. When he said he is the only door, he's the only way. Um, mimetic theory, uh, the nonviolence of Jesus Christ, the death of Christ not being necessary for our redemption, his bloodshed not being necessary for atonement. Those teachings come to us through a lot of the... Uh, world's books, Christian books. I've been in Anabaptist churches where they were using uh, books, let's say, The Purpose Driven Life, life as a uh, resource for the Sunday school lesson written by a pantheistic author. And those kind of doctrines invade our churches and really change the way we think a whole lot more than what we're aware of. Um, so we have to be on our guard. We have to stand with the, uh, the apostles and our forefathers who said a man must confess, a woman must confess that Jesus Christ is who he said he is and that he accomplished what he said he accomplished. Amen. Okay, I'd like to, the next question to broaden that out a little bit. We talked about unity and how important that is and how we all want that. And uh, I'd like to ask, have this question now. So what is the difference between the unity that Jesus prayed for and the goals of the ecumenical movement? So I think it's important for us. We, we do want unity and to, to love one another and to have humility. Those things are necessary. But I think there's also a, a danger in the ecumenical movement and the agenda that they have. And it's good for us to be aware of that. So maybe, brothers, you can... Talk about what is the difference between the unity Jesus prayed for and the true goals or agenda of the ecumenical movement. 
Now that's easy. Uh, when, when Jesus prayed for unity, he was, he was praying that people would be united in their purpose, in their goals, in their aims. They'd be side by side, working shoulder to shoulder. The ecumenical movement, as I've, as I've seen it firsthand, the goals are to socialize, to tolerate, to, to, tolerate, to, to have some degree of cooperation around some vague aims. It, it's the difference between an army and a group of people who are chit-chatting, uh, having tea and cookies. There's, there's, uh, you can chit-chat and have tea and cookies with a lot of people, but if you're going to go into army side-by-side side in battle with a group of people, you've got to know a lot more about them, how they're trained. You're going to be having common aims, and that's the difference. And that's why I think it's very important that, that we keep that term unity clear in our mind as difference from the tolerance that we've seen so often used in the ecumenical movement. Yeah, those would be my, my thoughts exactly. They're, they try to find the lowest common denominator, which is probably for them that you believe in God. You, you know, and and that has nothing to do with Jesus' prayer for unity. I, I don't think any of us would have even the least bit of interest in, in their goal. It's, yeah, they've made unity everything uh, where truth you know, has to be there. It has to be equally important. So... Yeah, for, for me, I, I have no, nothing to do with the ecumenical movement. I, I, I think that's a total waste of time. And, and fortunately, I don't think very many Bible-believing churches do that I'm, I'm aware of. I want to go back and reference the, uh, the quote from Spurgeon. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said that, I am quite certain that the best way to promote union is to promote truth. It will not do for us to be all united together through yielding to one another's mistakes. What we see in the modern ecumenicalism movement is, is just superficiality. It's not, it's not real. It's not real union. Uh, it's not Christian unity. Paul said in Ephesians 4 that we're to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And you've all heard this before, but there's a vast difference between the unity of the Spirit and the Spirit of unity. The ecumenical movement focused on trying to ignore doctrinal differences in order to accomplish what we believe is accomplished if we live the truth. If we live the truth out of living the truth and loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, we then practice pure religion undefiled before God. We're almost out of time, but I, I do want to stretch this a little bit. Uh, just one more question. This is a very practical one. So how should we relate to the influence of, say, charismatic Pentecostal thought? Uh, or how do we relate to maybe an improper understanding of being filled with the Holy Spirit, for example? So how, would we, uh, how should we relate to the influence of charismatic Pentecostal thought, uh, for example, like a wrong understanding of being filled with the Holy Spirit? And just to clarify, relate to meaning what? Well, as far as unity, I guess it would be. Yeah. As far as unity. Mm. Okay. Yeah, it's it's at least for me not quite as sharp of a question, but the um, I think it's the same thing that we've talked about all along. That on on any of these matters, whether it be tongues or or certain views of of um, spiritual gifts or whatever it might be, we need to 
have, we need to ourselves come to a, an understanding of what is biblically taught, what is, where is their biblical freedom, and where, are, where do those limits lie. And once we have that achieved, then we're able to, armed with that framework, be able to have that level of, of discussion with those who are on the other side. Having, having as a person who's grown up in, in charismatic churches from when I was very young, I know that, that world extremely well, I would say that, that generally that is almost always, I can't think of any, hardly any counterexamples, if any counterexamples, but the, the charismatic churches of today are usually completely uninterested in topics like non-resistance and separation and things like that. They're often some of the most sort of freewheeling, loose groups that are out there. Unfortunately, that spread even outside of the United States into places like Africa and in, in, into India. And wow, those movements have just caught on like wildfire there. And unfortunately, ridden, what's, what's riding in its coattails is a lot of this laxity as well, where there's so much emphasis on certain spiritual gifts and there's so little emphasis placed on obedience. I have found it personally very difficult to find a lot of common ground on some of these core issues that we've talked about already. Yeah. I see. Uh, I didn't ask this question earlier. I'm just yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and how do you relate to uh, your brothers and sisters at Foundry? Yeah, that's, okay. So that that, that helps me. Uh, so at at those in those family reunions and those discussions, I I am known to be, and I've done this to confront people and to lovingly, with humility, with all those things, say, Hey, what about this? What about that? And to have those discussions and. I, would, I think it's safe to say that basically everybody in my family and most of my friends know that I'm in a very different place where they are, and we have a lot of engagement and discussion. Now, some people respond really well to that, and it's still an ongoing thing. For other people, it's a huge turnoff, and it turns into something that's very tense, and I've learned just to, to back off there and not, not press that too far. But I at least believe that we should be the most... Uh, thoughtful, the most prayerful, the most intentional about those in our family. Often what we see in our family is that there's an initial period of resistance. We see this even in the Bible, the New Testament. Right? Jesus' own family, they were so resistant to accepting his own teachings about himself. But then they became, they did a 180. We see James who leads the church in Jerusalem. We see Jude writing this epistle there. And so often we see historically the same pattern play out that if we can lovingly bear with our family, not always, but often there will be one or more members that will eventually come, come along. And why not? I mean, they, they see us better than anybody. We have, if we have a, a, a godly witness, hopefully that would at least be evident to our own family members and our, our close friends. So I, I strongly believe that we should be very vocal and loving and persistent in having those dialogues. I would not personally have any communion, Lord's Supper, anything like that with any of, sadly, uh, those in my family even. But I am in a high level of discussion with basically everybody in my family. Uh, and I'd like to just say something to maybe clarify that uh, uh, a lot of people that think Pentecostal and Charismatic are the same. They're two fairly different movements. The, the Pentecostal movement came out of the holiness churches that were Wesleyan churches who, who would believe a lot of the things we do, not, they were not non-resistant, uh, but uh, they often dress as modestly as, as we do and, and, and that. 
Um, the charismatic movement uh, actually started, I think it was in the 1960s, and it started, you'll be surprised about this if you're young, started in the Catholic, the Episcopal, and some of the very liberal Presbyterian churches. And so there was never any holiness associated with the charismatic movement. And uh, today, the charismatic movement has pretty well swept everything. The, the old-time Pentecostals, hardly any United Pentecostal or the only one that even comes to my mind, um, and it's very hard to have much dialogue with them because they think they're the one true church. Um, they have a, a wrong understanding of the Trinity that I can, you know, overlook that, but they won't overlook it the other way. And, and so I found I, I haven't been able to have much dialogue there, but we do have some points um, in, in common. There are a few Pentecostal groups. The, the group down in Waco, Texas, not the Branch Davidian, but there's a... <laughs> It's called Heritage Farms. They've changed their names a couple times, but a number of Anabaptists I know have, have had a lot of interaction with them, and, and uh, I think they hold to non-resistance. I think we can build bridges. When I talk about building bridges, I'm not talking about, you know, uh, organic unity or having communion together or anything. Just, you know, be able to relate to one another and establish a relationship where we can witness and, and share things. Um, yeah, charismatics, it's, it's very hard because they reject almost any kind of uh, strict teachings of, of the Bible, uh, although there are differences in their movement. But the big problem is, uh, I have this always is a, a burn the saddle. They refer to themselves as spirit filled, and <laughs> which you know automatically they're coming. When you try to dialogue, they feel very superior uh, to you. So you either just ignore that, depending on what it is. If it's your family member, you, you, it's pretty hard to ignore that. Um, you know, I just have to be frank. I, I don't see the fruits of the Spirit. If you're filled with the Spirit, then I should be able to see uh, these various fruits. Now, now, often they do as well as we do in some of them, like, like love and, and, and that. But uh, uh, part of love of God is obeying all of His commandments. You know, Christ said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And they just ignore virtually all of them except, you know, perhaps love at a, at a certain level. So... You know, when pushes come to shove, I just have to point out, you know, that the evidence of the Spirit is, you know, that you're obedient to, to God's commandments. You know, John says, if, you know, if we say we love Him and, and uh, we're not uh, obeying His commandments, then we're, we're lying. I've paraphrased that pr pretty liberally, but... Uh, so, yeah, that's where I've got with them. I'm always open to try to build bridges to have dialogue. But, yeah, it's, it's hard when, in this case, the spiritual pride is on their part. I'm superior to you because I supposedly speak in tongues. Yeah, relating to, uh, relating to uh, Charismatics and Pentecostals. Um, you know, Jesus, one of the uh, primary teachings, one of the primary focuses of his teaching was to warn against deception. And not everything that's taught by Pentecostals, for example, is, is all error. And, and that's why it's deceptive. Um, we, can, we can be just as wrong, and, and I think we recognize this at an intellectual level, but, but, uh, but really we can be just as wrong by reacting and, and taking a stance that's as far from truth as the error that we're trying to avoid. Uh, spiritual gifts, um, emotionalism and worship, there's a place for all of that. 
Uh, just as a quick example, we just got back from Nepal two and a half weeks ago, and, and the Lord is doing wonderful things there in spreading the gospel. The, uh, the Christian church is growing through miraculous healings. And it was surprising to me. I didn't know that was going on. Uh, we should be cautious about that, but uh, we should not discount that, that, that God can work that way, and, and God has worked that way. And, and so, um, yeah, just, you know, deception means that there's truth and error mixed, and it becomes us to be very, very uh, discerning through all of that. If I could just add one thing to that, because you, you triggered a comment in my mind. You know, a lot of people don't don't realize that the early Anabaptists were they, they were actually quite promoting of the spiritual gifts. And if you read them, I'm, a lot of people will be shocked to read what some of these early Anabaptists wrote. And I'm, I myself am not a cessationist. So what we need to do is is to have that cautious uh, view where we can uh, be discerning there and not be overly dismissive. So often what happens with any movement is they take it to such an extreme and they make such a circus out of it that the whole subject becomes tarred with the bad brush. And, and then I think we can become guilty of a judgmentalism and of an overly skeptical attitude that's not warranted, either scripturally or by looking at even the, the uh, Anabaptist founding fathers. Before you start, John, I just have a mic for a second. Yeah. So, did the Anabaptist... turn it off. So this might sound like a loaded question. Did the early Anabaptists pray and speak in tongues that you know of? Yeah, there's, a, yeah, there's um, if you're interested, there's a, I've got a whole section on this in, in King Jesus' Church on the spiritual gifts. They, they actually, they, they did in their understanding of, of tongues at the time. And there's, um, there's some I mean, amazing reports that you read there. I think the tongues is not the interesting piece for me, but the reports of miracles uh, and Again, there's a quote in there that will floor you if, if, those, if those of you who are brave enough to read it from, um, and I gave, it's all primary references about the, the early Anabaptists there. So yeah, they, and certainly their understanding they did. One of the things that they were very cognizant of is, is the, they even structured their meetings around the 1 Corinthians 14 model where there would be this exhibition of the diversity of gifts and things like that. And it's, it's very interesting to read because in some sense the modern Anabaptists are at such an opposite position as the, as the early ones. Uh, let me mention, we will have Finney's book. If you haven't read it, um, we'll have it in the, the book room that goes right off of the dining room uh, later today. And yeah, if I could encourage you, it's, it's going to stretch you uh, a lot, but uh, definitely worthwhile reading. And yeah, getting into the uh, thing of deception and true, and sometimes it's very hard to see because you saw you know, real things uh, during that time. There was a group, they were not Anabaptists uh, in, in the sense we were, they were not non-resistance, called the Zwickau Prophets, and these men who were so certain they had all of this spiritual, these spiritual gifts and they were making all of these prophecies, none of which came true and ended up in a lot of people actually being slaughtered because of their wrong prophecies. So yeah, there's, there's, you know, you can, when you swing too far the either way, you know, don't discount it just because it's miraculous, but yeah, look, look hard and true so you don't get pulled in either you know both both are important my thoughts are back to the original question how we relate to uh, those from the um, Pentecostal uh, holiness type movement one of the things that we have seen is um, a, a real shift in our 
relating to people from the Protestant uh, and, and Pentecostal uh, groups and since the use of social media. Um, let me give you an example. In the, in the years following the Reformation, our forefathers believed that the Protestants were halfway Christians. They were not willing to go the whole way. And so they would not attend a church service with them for fear of their commitment to God being eroded. Uh, they believed that the Protestants were indeed a mission field and that their responsibility before God was to endeavor to humbly share the truth with them in hopes that they would embrace the full gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if you compare that stand with where we are today, uh, I, I have a lot of concern for, let me give you an example, just recently in another state, sitting down and sharing with someone who was going through a lot of struggle with their church leadership. And the church leadership, they don't hear me, they don't understand what my concerns are, and on and on it went. And it just seemed like there was no way we could reconcile the church leadership and this family. Once we were done talking about the issues they wanted to talk about, the father started talking to me about this certain radio preacher. And wow, I mean, if you want to listen to somebody who has the Holy Spirit, this is the man to listen to. This is, and what I'm sharing with you is that the Catholics had the view that there was that the church was universal and it was visible. The Protestants said it's universal and it's invisible. God's people have always believed that it was that it was local and it was visible. It was about living out your Christian faith in the local body. And if you can't live out your Christian faith in the local body, maybe you need to re examine your Christian faith to see if it is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think we need to call our hearts to that today. Uh, if Jesus said, if someone tells you that Jesus is over there, he's over there, don't believe it. He lives within the believer. And he will empower you to live Christ-like relationships with the people that he has called you to fellowship with and to serve with. So there's nothing wrong with learning from other people. But let's be very careful that we stay doctrinally true to the word of God. And that we reach out to those around us with his truth rather than being inoculated with the many doctrines that are being thrown at us by the media and by the many books that uh, can come into our homes. Thank you again, brothers. That was an excellent summary, John. Thank you. Uh, we heard a lot of things today and uh, a lot of good things. One thing that's sticking in my mind is that we need to maintain humility. Uh, we want to maintain the biblical truth that we have and that we believe in, but we must realize that we're not perfect either. We don't have it all together, and other, we can learn from others. So let's maintain that unity and that humility, rather.